Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I am great, David. I'm great. All the better for seeing you. Oh, uh, well, that's good to hear, Frank. <laughs> it's good, good to see you as well. Um, in recent weeks, uh, Republicans have, have said that the Biden administration has waged a war on meat, uh, claiming that, that falsely, that, that the Biden administration wants to take away your hamburger. Uh, and also in recent weeks, uh, the uh, website Epicurious, which is a online uh, recipe, recipe repository, has decided they are no longer going to accept any uh, new recipes for uh, meat dishes. Uh, and also in the news, the uh, upscale New York restaurant 11 Madison Park has decided when it's reopening, it's going to go on an entirely vegan menu, uh, which has caused uh, uproar in some quarters. Uh, so we thought this episode we talk about America's relationship with meat and the, the current controversy over meat in, in the place of, of the American diet, um, which seems like everything else to be wrapped up in the uh, never-ending culture wars. Yeah, I mean, what's even your relationship you with meat? <laughs> That's a leading question. Do you have a <laughs> How long have you had a relationship with me? Um, no, no, but even before we get that, I, I get to that, I think we need to talk about this, the, the, the culture war aspect of this, albeit mm. briefly, because we did talk about the culture war a few weeks ago in the, con in the context of canceling Dr. Seuss. Uh, and so the, the, the talking point that went around on right-wing media and social media a week or so ago was, you know, if Joe Biden gets his way, you can only have one hamburger per year or some kind of nonsense like this. Uh, I think we need to make clear that although there's a very interesting discussion to be had about meat and I've, in the United States, and I think we're going to try to do that in the next few minutes, there is no war on meat at the moment. Uh, this is yet another uh, false front in, in, in this culture war over everything being canceled. Whether this stuff works or not um, politically, well, that will re that remains to be seen. But it's interesting that in the absence of the Trump presidency, the media that helped prop him up and, and his supporters are, are really focusing on these culture war issues. I don't know what that says. And we, and we, you know, we can, we can talk about that another time, but, but that's prompted our discussion this week about, cause you know, last week it was me this week, who mm -hmm. knows what it will be. Um, as for my own relationship with me, do you have a relationship with meat and how long have you had one? Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's actually interesting. It's gone through a transformation. Uh, it's gone during the time we've been recording this podcast. So in the autumn of 2019, um, my son's girlfriend came. My son and his girlfriend lived with us for a little while uh, and, and she's a vegetarian. And um, so we were, started cooking a lot of vegetarian food. Initially we were trying to cook vegetarian and non-vegetarian at the same time. And that actually, if anybody who's done that will know, it's actually a real pain in the neck to do that. And so we just cooked vegetarian food while she was living with us. And that prompted a wider discussion about meat eating in, in our nuclear family. Um, and we decided to go meat free. This is pre-pandemic, it's, it's before the pandemic. Um, and have done so more or less since, I don't know, October, 2019, October, early November, 2019, I guess. And then we have a 
big group of people over for Thanksgiving, for Franksgiving every year, as you know. And, and uh, we had a turkey that year, but we haven't had one since. We haven't had one since. We, and we didn't have, we made a turkey for our guests because that's what you have at Thanksgiving, but we didn't eat it. And that got to be a mess. And then so, so we've gone meat free since then. And we've lapsed into, I suppose, pescatarianism. So we occasionally have fish. Hmm. Um, and I'm not in any position because I was over 50 at the time and I'd had a lifetime of, uh, of American meat eating habits prior to that to lecture anybody on this issue. Um, and, and I'm certainly not interested in, in doing that um, either among friends or even on this podcast. The transition has been interesting and it's, it was, it was, it's been interesting doing that. I um, spent January of 2020 in Charlottesville on, on a fellowship at Monticello. It was the last travel I did. And I, um, uh, and this was soon after this, this, this um, change in my diet. And so that was interesting. It was interesting to be in the US then. Very, very interesting. It's been very, very interesting because, of course, then the pandemic came, then the lockdown came, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and so we've done a lot of vegetarian cooking in the past year or so. It's a hell of a lot cheaper. That's mm. one thing we noticed. Uh, and I'd say in terms of what motivated us to do this, there were two things. Um, there's an environmental case for it, um, which I found quite compelling, especially uh, as someone who until that point traveled quite a bit by air. And I'm not saying you can give up meat to offset all your traveling, but I was that's, thinking- That's a lot okay, of meat I've you have to, to give up. <laughs> have to give, yeah, exactly. But every little helps as the saying mm. goes. Um, and, and the animal welfare issue. So those two things together uh, were kind of what motivated me. It was a difficult transition in the beginning, I would argue, because what we did, which I think a lot of people do, is we were looking for meat substitutes. Hmm. Um, and, and frankly, that's not terribly satisfying. I mean, I know there's Beyond Meat and Miracle Meat, all these other things. And um, I tried those when I was in the States, for example, for that month in January of 2020. In fact, I set off the, I set off the smoke detector while cooking... <laughs> um, <laughs> some sort of fake meat at, at my at the flat in Monticello and because it's a public museum public history site of some significance mm. um even though I shut it off and I called security and explained what happened they said no 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 the fire department has to come and so I found myself on a cold January evening waiting for the Albemarle fire department to come and and um satisfy themselves that I was not indeed burning down Monticello and I stood there with a guy named Bill Barker who's a very nice man who's actually a Thomas Jefferson impersonator so I stood out in a cold January night with Bill Barker waiting or dressed as Thomas Jefferson waiting for the uh fire department to come so that that was as a consequence of eating not eating meat um so there was this sorry this is more than you wanted to know David but you asked That's, I uh, guess. So, so there was <laughs> there was a transition from you know, sort of looking for meat substitutes and then moving, if you will, to just trying to do vegetarian with some fish, a vegetarian cooking without worrying about meat. And that was better. You know, sorry. That's well, it. Just, <laughs> it, it strikes me that, 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 you know, I think there's lots of people who are making that same trajectory that you've just described yeah. today. I mean, I think that, that becoming a, a vegetarian in various varieties, whether it's a, a pescatarian or a you know, various versions of vegetarian. I think that's become much more mainstream in the past 20 years than it had been previously. We can think about all the sort of celebrities, whether those are 
Hollywood people or politicians or or other kind of media figures that have become vegetarian, who are vegetarian and are, are uh, you know, have, have made that much more acceptable uh, and easier to be a vegetarian now than maybe it used to be. Um, yeah, I was a yeah, I think that's right. I was a vegetarian for about three years in the 90s. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I had read diet for a small planet and, uh, and some other stuff. And um, it was hard just because they're like, they're, they're, you, you go to a restaurant and there'd be no vegetarian options, you know, and you'd have to say like, well, what do you have? Do you don't have meat? And they'd have to make you something special. And there's usually like spaghetti I, or something. Um, this has chicken. It's like, yeah, it's like, that's not what I want. I want no, no meat. They're like, I don't understand. Meat is what we hear. Um, you know, and, and, and grocery stores didn't have, have, the only kind of vegetable selection maybe that some places do now and farmers markets weren't as ubiquitous and other kinds of things. Um, and, and people pointed at you if you were a vegetarian and said, boy, you're kind of weird and in a way that people uh, don't today, uh, which explains part of the reason why I stopped being a vegetarian just because it was difficult. It was a lot of work and, and much more so than uh, it is today. Uh, yeah, but I, I think that I'm sure that's true. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, you mentioned hanging out with the Thomas Jefferson impersonator uh, uh, waiting for the fire truck to come. What uh, would, would Thomas Jefferson have said about, about vegetarianism? I'm happy you asked that, David, because I happen to have a quote right here. And oh, wow. I have a couple okay. because totally Thomas, Thomas Jefferson was, a, was ahead of his time. Well, we didn't coordinate on this, but uh, this is one area where, where Jefferson is quite modern, if you will, because he wrote in 1819, I have lived temperately, eating little animal food, and that not as an aliment so much as a condiment for the vegetables which constitute my principal diet. And his granddaughter, Ellen Wales Randolph Coolidge, uh, remembered, he lived uh, and wrote, he lived principally on vegetables. The little meat he took seemed merely as a seasoning for his vegetables. So Jefferson's diet, he was very into French cooking as well, mm. um, but his diet pretty much consisted of eating meat and vegetables almost in the exact opposite proportions that Americans did in his lifetime and certainly have since, which is having meat as the center of the meal with a little bit of extra, with some vegetables on the side. So, so Jefferson was not a vegetarian, but he, he would have fit in this current moment where I think people sort of are either going meat-free for certain days or, or trying to change the proportion of the meat they eat. So it's not a zero-sum game mm. now. I think that's a crucial difference. One decision that um, my wife and I made, because I, for reasons I don't need to go into here, but for, there, there are certain medical reasons why I have dietary restrictions. And so when we eat socially with people, if people have gone out of the way to accommodate my mm. uh, medical requirements, I don't actually then say, oh yeah, and I don't eat yeah, meat. Here, here's the list of you know, 37 things I don't eat. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> you know, so it's like, well, here's your bowl of cereal. <laughs> so when, you know, having spent having spent 50 plus years eating meat, so I'm not, I, this is not something I can lecture anybody on. I, uh, I feel that there's a kind of imperative to be a good guest as well as a good host, uh, or when somebody's being a good host and not to be a jerk about it so i don't sort of make an issue of me in social now, context now when you mentioned oh, oh no yeah when you mentioned sorry, jefferson there being cross purposes or having a different diet that than most americans uh in the colonial and revolutionary era how much meat were they eating and what kinds of meat were they eating 
Well, okay. Uh, the truth is we don't know for sure in terms of stats. I mean, I have some amazing stats here for how much Americans mm. eat today, uh, which, are, which will probably shock some people. Uh, it seems that uh, the, the estimate, I did a little bit of reading for this, and the estimate is that um, Americans ate a lot of meat in the 18th century, but the meat they ate was, first of all, meat they either hunted themselves or raised themselves in most cases. It tended to be either game, that is stuff you shot, uh, and that includes fowl, or pork. I mean, pork mm. was the predominant meat in, in America, in, in British North America and early national America until the rise of cattle and the beef industry in the 19th century, which I'm sure we're going to talk about when I, when I hand things over to you. So they're eating a pork heavy diet or they're eating game, um, not eating as much in proportional terms. Uh, they're eating more than Europeans are probably mm. at the time, but they're not eating much by modern standards. If, if that oh, makes okay. sense. Yeah. So, so I think the estimate is, so the current estimate is um, that America, and I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to use imperial measurements here because that's, because we're talking about the United States um, rather than metric, but uh, that, that contemporary Americans, according to the research I did for this episode, you might have slightly different stats, eat about 274 pounds of meat per capita per year. That's, I don't know, that's the figure I came up with. Uh, that's an increase of 40% since 1961. The estimate, one estimate I read um, uh, for the 18th century was somewhere between 150 to 200 pounds of meat per, per capita per annum. These are really guesstimates, though, I think, for the 18th sure. century. We don't have could have good. Interestingly, it's the history of enslavement. We know that you know there is some evidence for, for the amount of meat that was given to enslaved people. And we can assume that free people were probably eating more meat. So Americans are eating mm. a lot of meat in the 18th century by comparison with Europeans. They're not eating a lot of meat by comparison with their contemporary, with their descendants today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, think that's a fair uh, description. A, I, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things you know, you find European visitors to the United States, whether that's in the 18th or, or or the 19th century, saying, "Boy, Americans eat a lot of meat," right? Yeah, that's right. You know, and Irish immigrants come to the United States and say, "Look, I have meat every day," and they write home, and people say, "If at home, no, you're not. Nobody has meat every day. At least nobody who's not elite doesn't have meat every day." Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Charles um, Dickens famously wrote it, famously observed that you know, it's not breakfast in America unless people eat steak. Exactly. Now, right. Dick, or or lots of sausage America, and bacons. Yeah. 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 Um, now, I mean, one thing to consider about the kinds of, of meats that they're eating, and you mentioned pork, and I think pork was, was sort of the, the mainstay of it, as long as well as all this game, is that, that you know, we tend to have. And, fresh meat and to a lesser extent frozen meat um a lot of the meat they would have been eating in the 19th century was going to be either salted or smoked yeah that's right um or pickled and and so you know in terms of fresh meat that would actually only be a i think a relatively small proportion of the diet um and i think one of the things you'll see over the the course here of looking at the neck the sort of the past 200 years is, is the kinds of ways in which people get access to meat is going to change dramatically over time. Um, it's going to lead to Americans eating more meat, and they already start off by eating a lot of meat, but also by, uh, by increasingly eating sort of relatively fresh meat as opposed to uh, preserved meats. Uh, but I guess as you, you mentioned, Jefferson, you know, not eating that much meat. There were other Americans in the, you know, in your era, the era that don't didn't eat as much meat, 
Uh, ben Franklin, I think, mentions in his autobiography that he became a vegetarian at one point and said, hey, this is great. I'm not spending any money on meat. I can buy more books. Um, and But then at one point, I think he, he described being on a boat and they're cooking some fish. And he said, oh, that fish sounded, you know, smelled really good. I'm going to beat that instead. Um, so he gave up on, on his vegetarianism. Um, but it is an idea I think that people are sort of, of playing around with. Yeah, although I think it's fair to say that Jefferson and Franklin are outliers. They're outliers in their society for all kinds of reasons, but yeah. they're, they're outliers. Yeah. Um, and, so they're playing around with it. It's not, I mean, when does vegetarianism, I mean, Dave, you know more yeah, about yeah. this than I do, yeah. I think. So give us the brief history of American vegetarianism. If you, uh, well, so wh in, when, when is the, what's the origin of the word? When is the word coined? Uh, that's a good question. The American Vegetarian Society is founded in 1850. So it okay. was a common in common use or moderately common usage by the mid 19th century. And they're borrowing ideas from the UK, which had had vegetarian societies uh, at, at the same uh, point. Um, and there's lots of people who are playing around with 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 non -beat, meat based diets in the 1840s in particular. And it's the kind of people you'd sort of expect to be playing around with with dietary restrictions. So it's a lot of the people who are involved in reform movements. There are people who are involved in abolition, people who are involved in moral purity movements. People saw meat as inherently sort of corrupting. We think of people like uh, Sylvester Graham, who talked about meat as being sort of one of the things that caused men, along with alcohol and, and racy literature that, that caused men to behave in immoral ways. And so he advocated a vegetarian diet. There were some of the sort of the utopian societies in the mid 19th century that embraced a vegetarian uh, diet. Probably the most famous is, is Fruitlands, uh, which is a good name for a vegetarian colony, uh, which was founded in 1843 by uh, Amos Alcott, the father of Louisa May Alcott uh, and Charles Lane. They had uh, a 90 acre uh, commune basically near Harvard, Massachusetts, not Harvard University, but the town of Harvard. Um, and they wanted to sort of rid themselves of cruelty to animals. They were also, many of them, abolitionists, since they sort of saw that as being part and parcel of the same thing. So they had a completely vegetarian diet. Uh, they had no animal-based clothing, so they had no uh, wool or leather. They also had no cotton clothing, um, because that was all grown by enslaved labor. So they were all wearing linen, which doesn't always seem like a great uh, fashion choice, but that's what they were wearing. Uh, they drank no coffee or tea. So they were sort of abstaining from stimulants. Um, they also abstained from carrots and potatoes because those grew the wrong way. Those grew down instead of up and they wanted only foods that grew up. So they, they didn't have any carrots or potatoes. Um, and they were also, they decided not to have any animal labor on the farms. They didn't have any horses or cows or mules or, or other kinds of, of, of draft animals. Uh, yeah, so the whole thing didn't work very well. And they basically gave it up after one yeah. year because they, they ran out of food. Yeah, people visited them and said, you guys look great in, uh, you know, in the summer. Let's see how you look in December. And like the whole thing fell apart. Um, Louisa May, May Alcott actually wrote a, a short story about it. Um, but there's other people who are playing around with vegetarianism, you know, in um, 
you know, the 1840s and 1850s. Susan B. Anthony gets interested in it. Horace Greeley does. Lucy Stone, um, you know, and they see vegetarianism as sort of fitting into that sort of moral landscape about, you know, opposition to 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 slavery, opposition to to uh, sort of white supremacy, opposition to ex exploitation. Um, you know, and some of them embrace that to, to various degrees. Um, and you see actually lots of, of Americans throughout the 19th century sort of seeing vegetarianism as fitting to the sort of alternative moral landscape. We can think sort of later about people like, um, well, like Kellogg, for instance, at the end of the 19th century, the guy who invented cornflakes, you know, saw cornflakes as being part of a vegetarian diet that would lead to moral improvement. David, I mean, this—that's fascinating stuff, and and I say this with respect, and and I suppose I can say it now because I'm a. Well, I don't. I don't think I can call myself a vegetarian because I do eat fish. So mm. I'm a pescatarian, but I'm I'm not far off it. Uh, so I say this with respect. Uh, you talked about your experience in the 1990s of people basically thinking you're a weirdo, right? Well, I mean, um, they, they and, had and, lots of reasons the, for that besides the vegetarian <laughs> thing. That wasn't the. the <laughs> That was just the, the cherry on top of the Sunday. Exactly, right? Like they, they had lots of evidence <laughs> no, no, but, otherwise. But these more these kind of moral reform movements of the mid-19th century, and, and I've, of that history, I wasn't aware of that level of detail, but it's fascinating, but not entirely surprising. Uh, and then vegetarianism, vegetarianism in its more modern incarnations, um, you know, coming out of the 1960s protest movements and so on, is associated with well-meaning progressive eccentric sometimes right mm. and so i wonder the degree to which that's a problem for it making the mainstream so so this is if you will another way of getting at the cultural war when when people on fox news get on there and say you know usually a white man of our age saying they're only going to let us have one hamburger per year mm. that they're tapping into this particular culture which associates vegetarianism with certain politics but also eccentricity and just being weird is yeah, that fair no, I think, I think that, as, I think as that, an assessment not a, uh, yeah. yeah no yeah, i think that's ahead. right that, that that the sort of there are echoes of the of of the sort of 19th century culture war um playing being played out today right and in some ways it's the vegetarian is, is something that weirdos on the left do and that that real americans on the right um you know eat a lot of meat because that's what americans do um, right, and so they're 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 associating meat with being American. Yeah, and there's a lot of cultural evidence to support that view, given the importance of meat eating and the meat industry historically in the United States. So, to some extent, the critique that people who don't eat meat are weirdos outside the mainstream um, isn't wrong. Yeah, no, I think I think I think. Um, you know, the United States had a, a very high rate of, of, of dependence on meat as part of the diet, uh, really throughout the, the 19th century, uh, and obviously before and, and since. But, uh, you know, meat was, was a much more important part of the diet, especially for working class free people than it would have been in Europe. Um, you know, it would have been unusual in the 19th century to have at least a meat element in, in part of every meal. Uh, so which is something that, you know, in the 20th century is true for many Americans as well. So 
Um, so, so David, we associate American meat, and when we think about meat in America, we think hmm. about beef, yeah, right. But we've talked about pork during the 18th century. What happened? What? How? Can you explain the transition from pork to beef in the 19th um, century? Yeah. So you have a, a lot of of pork production, especially in the, in the antebellum period. You have places like Cincinnati becoming described as porkopolis, um, you know, with with meat packing plants uh, in, in Cincinnati. Um, a couple of things happen in uh, the end of the 19th century that makes beef take over from pork as the, the sort of dominant uh, industry. Um, one is, 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 is the railroad. You know, you, you had get able to get um, cattle from uh, the Great Plains to cattle processing facilities in places like Abilene. Um, and that you first have cattle on railroads in 1867. So right after the Civil War is when you first start to have cattle cars. That same year, you have the introduction of barbed wire, which allows for controlling space and therefore livestock on that space in, in ways and in affordable ways uh, that, that, that a sort of open range uh, livestock uh, raising didn't allow. Um, but you have a few other things happening, you know, technologically that makes it possible. Things like the refrigerated railroad car, which allowed you to ship not only, you know, to, to, to ship carcasses that have been, been uh, you know, from the animals that have been killed, but not yet processed uh, on, on uh, train cars. And this there was actually then a consequent uh, an ice industry to, to get ice to put into these refrigerated cars. They had sort of a big compartment on the top to allow uh, ice to be packed onto these uh, railroad cars to keep uh, the meat cold. Um, and you have the development in, in the 19th century of, of uh, you know, enormous cattle processing facilities in places, especially like Chicago. And one of the things that you find is, is that, that this pipeline between sort of cattle grown in the West, processed in the Midwest, and then eaten in the East becomes increasingly sort of integrated by 1900. And this becomes really a huge business. You know, it's a, if you think about the size of the cattle industry, starting from the cowboys who are taking care of the animals uh, to the people who are butchering the animals and processing the animals and all the people involved in, in um, shipping the food east, uh, you know, is tremendous. Yeah, I mean, by some measures, meatpacking was the largest industry in the United States in 1900, yeah. which is a staggering thing. And you're right, you've done a good job of describing that. Um, so that kind of culture of cattle raising, you know, uh, spreads... Um, with the acquisition of Texas after the after the Mexican War and and uh, the technological the, the meaning of technology and geography mm. is really really important here. You're right, but there's a marketing element to this. I always remember this when I was in graduate school. Robert Bruce, whose work you oh, might yeah. be familiar with, he wrote that book Lincoln and the Tools of War. He was a very very he was an old Yankee. Um, lived in New Hampshire, uh, and it had a very dry kind of New England way of expressing himself. He's very funny. And he was talking about how marketing refrigerated meat was really, really important in the 1880s. 
Um, so you get this te this technology develops, but persuading people they could eat mm. meat that was say raised in Kansas and slaughtered in Chicago and then shipped by train to Boston or New York, and he sort of deadpanned. He said, so, you know, initially they had to give it away for free. Hmm. They had to bring refrigerated meat. They so refrigerated meat was sent to Boston, and they sent they gave it away for free so that people would try it and and realize it was okay as opposed to locally butchered meat. And then he deadpanned. He said, "New Englanders would eat poison if it were free." <laughs> um, and so Rob, Robert Bruce, that's always stuck with me here thirty years later. And so so this kind of historians are always talking about the rise mm. of the market and spread of capitalism. The story of beef in America and the story of beef supplanting pork is very much the story of capitalism in the United States to some extent. And it continues down to the 1950s mm. and 60s where, you know, steak, you know, eating steak is a sign of, of, of um, not just kind of patriotic virility but also yeah. it's a status thing you, you know steak and martinis in the mid you know madman if you think if you've yeah. seen madman right yeah um, that's a very long-standing the right uh, tradition that that, that the yeah. steak is the sort of epitome of the fancy meal i mean in the 19th century it was the delmonico steak in new york city if you wanted to say like this yep. if you want to have a story and set it in somewhere fancy you said in delmonico's and they have a steak that that was sort of the epitome of of high cuisine uh, if you will um of course, the, the meatpacking industry uh, in Chicago is sort of the, the site of, of one of the most uh, important novels in the early part of the 20th centuries, and that's uh, the Upton Sinclair's uh, The Jungle, published in 1906, uh, which is a novel set in a Chicago meatpacking community um, where his intention in writing the book was to get the reader to associate with the uh, poor immigrants who are working in these factories and the real horrible conditions that they're living in and working in. Um, but that's not the response that most Americans had to the book. Uh, they read the book and worried about the quality of the food they were eating because there's some really gruesome descriptions of, yeah. of, of both what were happening to the animals and what, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, if a, there's a book that's going to make you a vegetarian, read the jungle, you'll, you know, um, We'll, we'll reconsider some of your choices. Um, but the jungle led to increased government regulation of, of, of meat packing. Um, it leads to the, the Federal Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act, both of which are passed the same year the book comes out. So, I mean, this is a book that hits the market. Immediately people say, geez, we really got to do something about the uh, meat supply. Um, Sinclair uh, supposedly said uh, that his, uh, the book was uh, aimed at America's heart, but by a mistake, he hit his stomach because <laughs> uh, people were concerned about what they're, they're eating. Um, but if anything, you know, the American obsession with meat only sort of accelerates after that point. There are some moments, though, when Americans eat less meat. Uh, one is in the First World War, where uh, the Wilson administration calls on Americans to eat less, to take uh, meatless Tuesday probably would have made more sense to have meatless Monday for alliteration, but he made meatless Tuesday. Uh, and the person behind sort of the meatless Tuesday movement was the guy in charge of the food supply in world war one. That's uh, future president Herbert Hoover. Uh, I knew they were trying to encourage Americans to eat less meat so that meat could be used to, to sent off to the war. 
you find a, a similar uh, movement during the Second World War to try to abstain from meat on certain days uh, and to reduce uh, other kinds of, of needed foods uh, for the war effort uh, during the Second World War. Uh, but I think one of the things you have in the aftermath of both the First World War, the Great Depression, and the Second World War is a real rebound of meat uh, in, in the 50s and 60s. Americans are eating just a huge amount of, of especially red meat in, in, in those decades. And, and some of it has to do with things like the refrigerated truck gets introduced, which allows fresh meat to get not only you know, from city to city, but actually to your local grocery store. You find things like the rise of fast food, which is based on the hamburger um, primarily uh, as, as a foodstuff. And so people are eating a lot, a lot of meat. Uh, and that becomes identified as being a quintessential aspect of American society and culture, right? If there's a, a, you know, grilling hamburgers and hot dogs is the epitome of Americanism uh, during those decades, I think. Yeah, I mean, it culminates. The, the high point for beef in the United States is perhaps mm. appropriately the bicentennial of 1976, mm. when Americans eat an average of just under 130 pounds of beef alone per yeah. person per year. Um, today, it's around 80 pounds. So we eat mm. much, we, or Americans eat much less beef today mm than they did almost, you know, 40 years ago. And I think what we've seen, now, now meat, per, meat consumption remains very, very high in the United States. So I've got some figures for, for 2020. Um, basically Americans, the United, in the United States, 100 billion pounds of meat and poultry were consumed in 2020. So, so that's a lot of meat. Mm. Uh, it breaks down into 2.2 million sheep, 32.2 million cows or cattle, uh, 121 million hogs, 242 million turkeys, and wait for it, 9 billion chickens. So what we've seen in the past 40 years from that period in 1976 when Americans were eating 130 pounds of beef per year per person is a transition, if you will, from beef to chickens. I mean, it's yeah. not as simple as that because they're still eating lots of beef. But and I think that coincided with concern about the health uh, impact of eating too much red meat. There was very you know, the poultry mm. industry, and it is an industry, um, did a very good job of, of spreading the word that chicken meat, white meat, was healthier than red meat, which it probably is. Uh, mm. Well, it is, um, and, and selling it as such. Indeed, the pork industry kind of, you probably remember the pork slogan of the, the other, other white meat. meat. Yeah. So, so, yeah, um, and, and so what we've seen is the rise of, of kind of chicken industrial complex in the past 50 years that is absolutely huge. Mm. It's all those millions of chicken wings, billions of chicken wings people eat at bars and chicken nuggets and roast chickens and so on. And chicken is, in many respects, which was a luxury meat in the early 20th century, mm. was something you might eat on Christmas, uh, has emerged as, if you will, the kind of uh, default meat for many Americans today. Do you think that's an accurate Yeah, no, I think, that, you know, I think all the things you said are true. One of the things that's happened with chicken is chicken has gotten a lot cheaper, like, you know, especially in the yeah. past 40 years. Um, and so, you know, part of it was people, you know, the reports about, about heart disease and whatnot with, with saturated fats and red meat and all that kind of stuff. A part of it is people are making choices at the grocery store between, 
you know, beef and chicken and chicken simply a, a cheaper product, at least uh, at the moment. Uh, and so if you're thinking about sort of the, the trajectory here, we went from pork to, to beef to chicken uh, um, as, as sort of the dominant uh, meat product. Um, I mean, one of the sort of thinking about. Sorry, David. No, no, finish your thought, and then I have a question oh, for you. Go ahead. Well, it's you know thinking about the the the, the development though of, of of alternative to meat based diets. I think there's one really important milestone. Um, thinking about uh, the, the prominence you mentioned of uh, of beef at the at the bicentennial, uh, and that's uh, the publication in 1971 of Diet for a Small Planet. Have you ever read? read that book i haven't no okay no, so it's, a I, fair, I not. it's a was was a very important book when it came out and of course 1971 it's one year after the first earth day uh so environmental consciousness is sort of, sort of on, uh, on the horizon if you will uh, it's a book that's written by by francis moore uh lapay uh and the book essentially is looking at at uh well it's sort of it's a two-part book the first half of the book is looking at the impact of meat on the planet and says basically the planet is 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 unable to maintain sort of a meat-based diet that the hunger we have around the globe is not a fact factor of not having enough food but using growing food to feed to animals to then eat the animals is the reason why people around the world don't have enough food and she points out in the book that if there's enough food grown in the United States to feed the entire world, but we use a lot of that food to only to feed other animals. And that's a totally inefficient way of uh, producing. So there's sort of a global environmental social justice element to the book and the argument of the book. And this, and the book argues essentially that people should instead embrace a vegetarian diet. Uh, and sort of the second half of the book is a series of recipes about how to do this. Um, they're not particularly great recipes, uh, having, I said, having trying to make some of them. They're, they're the kinds of sort of bad hippie vegetarian recipes you'd expect. Yeah, you, got, you know what I mean. Um, but it's a hugely influential book in terms of, of, of creating that sort of counterculture of vegetarianism. Uh, you know, and there's, I think there's some pretty strong reverberations, even. 50 years later. Um, there are some problems with the book. One of the sort of uh, main arguments of the book is that in order to have a healthy vegetarian diet, you need to combine different kinds of foods to com make complete proteins. Um, you know, so if you had to have grains and beans together in the same meal and otherwise your vegetarian diet would, would not give you complete protein. It turns out none of that's really true, at least not to the extent that, that it describes it in the book. Um, and that turned out to be a very influential aspect of, of vegetarian cooking for, for a very long time. Um, but I think that's a very an important moment in sort of pushing back against this dominant meat culture, because I think lots of people read that book. Uh, and I think that obviously the, the arguments people have today about why they become vegetarians um, are, are fit into that ethos about this is a vegetarianism is a, is a moral choice, not only for oneself, but also because of the impact that has upon the planet. Yeah, I mean, the carbon footprint of 
big meat, if you will, is mm. pretty significant. And we now know this. The New York Times was reporting on this in the past week in the context of this debate about about meat in public and, you know, the, the, the carbon footprint or um, for, for meat production, almost any kind of meat is, is mm. pretty significant, um, including crustaceans. So, you know, mm. the, you know, farm shrimp or prawns are pretty bad for the environment we now know not least because if you pick up a package of them at least here in, in scotland in the supermarket more often than not they're coming from thailand so so sure. uh, just getting just getting them here let alone let, let alone how they're how they're raised um mm. is an issue so so i think that awareness is is an interesting part of this uh, the question i wanted to ask you and it kind of relates to this i think david is you of course have lived a lot of your life in north carolina which is famous for lots of things, but you know the meat industry is pretty big there. Is that um, correct? Particularly pork, but not only. And I and I wonder uh, what it. Uh, I guess yeah, I I don't know if you have any reflections on that. I'm always aware of this because and this is unfortunate. Whenever there's a hurricane that hits North Carolina, mm. of course the 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 the, the effluvia from the massive pork industry, the, these these ponds full of waste, often mm. get into the groundwater, and we hear about it then. But I don't know whether you have any. Yeah. Uh, well, so, you know, Eastern North Carolina, which is the part that would get by the hurricanes, um, has huge numbers of both um, pork um, feedlots and, and chickens, uh, just by the millions. Um, and you know there, there's huge environmental consequences for this. They, they you know the, the the they gather the waste from these animals in these enormous ponds, um, yeah. which you can smell for for miles around and have huge sort of environmental consequences uh, of that amount of, of of you know the cruelty of of the animals is is you know they're they're penned in in very small spaces, you know in terms of a, a meaningful life for the animal. Um, if that's important to you, these animals don't have it. Uh, the working conditions in these places are also pretty abysmal. Um, you know, they're, they're relying a great deal on uh, immigrant labor, uh, mostly from Latin America, some of which is uh, both legal and illegal uh, immigration. Uh, and, and the conditions that, that the laborers are working in is really uh horrible you know working in a, a chicken processing plant uh it, the descriptions of it are, are are horrifying so so it's a, a really an important industry in terms of the amount of sort of money that's that's generated by it um but but it's you know has has real massive both uh, moral and environmental problems attached to it um you know but Thinking about the specifics there of, the, of, of one individual state, and obviously the, the diets of, of, of Americans vary tremendously on, on, region, on a regional basis. You know, meat's a very important part of the Southern diet, right? Mm. You know, thinking about sort of things like barbecue, people get into fights over the right way to make barbecue in, in North Carolina. Um, and, and the centrality of meat in terms of, of local identity is very important. So people are, are attached to what they eat. Uh, I think that's sort of obvious, but you know, I think it sort of speaks to why these issues are so um, divisive or can be, you know, and 
states that that have large uh, livestock components of their economy have, have have, and North Carolina is one of them, but there's lots in the Midwest that have done the same thing. Uh, you know, have passed laws to to protect both the farms and the processing facilities uh, from scrutiny. Uh, the these so-called ag-gag laws that start to get passed in the 1990s uh, that prohibit people from filming inside animal processing facilities, um, in part because the conditions are pretty horrific, both for the workers and for the for the animals. Um, and and you know, states like Iowa are so concerned about about the 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 effect of that kind of of you know. Uh, journalism uh, would have upon uh, uh, those industries that they've passed laws to prohibit it. Um, and we can think actually a lot about sort of the, the horrific conditions in these factories in a much more recent context. You know, if we think about places where there were huge outbreaks of, 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 of COVID during the, the, especially the early months of the pandemic in the United States, a lot of them were in meatpacking plants in part because of, of the sort of conditions inside those plants, how close the people are working to each other. Um, I think that that says something about, uh, sort of more broadly about, about the kinds of, of, of facilities these are. You know, I think people have embraced vegetarianism in part for the sort of the environmental reasons you mentioned, but also because of their uncomfortable, you know, the, the ways in which, you know, they have the industrial processes that, that that American meat goes through makes people profoundly uncomfortable. Um, I think if you visit one of these facilities, you know, your likelihood of, of reconsidering your relationship with meat is, is pretty significant. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it was interesting because one of the early shocks during the pandemic to, the, to at least the Trump administration was when there was a danger of the meat supply being interrupted mm. because of the, 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 the spread of the, the, of, the, of the disease in meatpacking yeah. plants. Um, but back last spring, that was one of the, one of the uh, that was an early concern. Um, and it was one of the things that made the Trump administration um, take, it, take the pandemic a little more seriously than they had previously yeah. um, um, because, because of the, the importance of meat to Ameri the American, um, not just the diet, but as you suggest and talking about not, not just regionally, but nationally, almost the psyche of the country. But yeah, as with so many other things, we don't necessarily want to see where it comes oh, from. Oh, to be sure, you know. Uh, or, how, or how it gets there. Well, it, it, listeners may remember this, but one of the, the many businesses that the former president tried to his hand at and failed at was the Trump steak business, where he had the, the world's best steaks, at least according to him. Um, they could order by mail or something. Um, but I think his attraction to steaks is the same as his attraction to sort of other things. It was seen as the sort of epitome of, of cuisine, the, the thing that, uh, you know, made you look luxurious or something. That's a status item. It's a status symbol. Yeah, take, going out for a steak dinner is yeah is is ha, has or at least had a, a cultural cachet that that it uh, may not have anymore or may not have anymore at least within certain circles. Um, so so David, uh, what do you you know we our our skill as prognosticators is well established mm -hmm. here. So so. Listeners can turn off now as I ask you this question. Uh, 
What do you think the future is here? I mean, are we going to have an actual culture war over meat? Will Americans not give up meat entirely, but but move away from meat, do you reckon, in the, in the coming decades because of what we know in terms of the environment and health, you, you will, whatever your issues are, animal welfare, human yeah. welfare, or will this be something as it was in the 1840s, as it was in the 1970s, that's essentially an affectation of people from a particular, frankly, social class, but also polit and political bent who have the money to buy mm. kale or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. is this, what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, couple of things you said I want to sort of highlight. You know, one of the things that is much easier to do today than it ever has been is to to eat things that are not meat, right? You know, I think one of the reasons why the American, you know, if you think about if you're not going to eat meat and you're Benjamin Franklin, much of the year that means you're eating bread, right? Because it's, vegetables are only available. Yeah, well, and, and you know, the there, there's a seasonality to things that 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 you know we, we found ways around uh, both technologically and otherwise uh, today. Um, you know, one of the things if you look at meat consumption on the, across the globe, uh, meat consumption has increased very dramatically over the past fifty years, uh, and that's in large part because there's a lot more meat consumption in places like China. Yeah, uh, and um, that has really massive environmental consequences uh, and, and sort of our ability as a planet to consume as much meat as we are now and we might be in a few years um, may not be sustainable. Um, now, I mean, what does that mean then for the American context? I think, I think Americans are increasingly going to... Uh, embrace alternatives to having meat as being the centerpiece of every meal. Uh, you know, I think for many years, you know, meat in part because of the marketing issues you talked about, partially because of the sort of availability of it, partially for all kinds of reasons, you know, Americans associated, especially dinner with, with, with a, you know, a, what you had for dinner, people, if you ask people what you have for dinner, they would tell you what meat they had for dinner, right? You say, what's your, dinner? oh, chickens for dinner, beefs for dinner, you know, so right. they didn't say like, oh, we had potatoes and a little bit of beef on stuff. They wouldn't say that. That just doesn't make sense yeah. the American vocabulary. Um, I think we're, we've moved away from that now, uh, or at least many Americans have. Um, and so I'm envisioning 50 years from now, Americans will be eating maybe half as much meat as they are right now. What do you think? I mean, I may be overly optimistic about that. No, I think that's probably right. Uh, you're right. Globally, I mean, one of the things, there's a close correlation between increased wealth and increased meat eating. There's no doubt about that. I mean, economists have demonstrated this, and this mm -hmm. is a transnational phenomenon. So, you know, meat eating in China will continue to rise. Uh, let's not forget that COVID likely originated in a wet market in Wuhan, selling... Mm. Um, well, exotic animal meat, but but you know, so, so, so the, the the kind of environmental implications are are, are myriad and and mm. operate on different vectors. I I think I'm very interested to see what will happen with the, especially in the United States, 
the kind of beyond meat, the meat alternatives, you know, or, or lab grown meat that these sorts of things, mm. whether they are the solution uh, for the American diet. And, I, and I'm back to thinking about Robert Bruce's comment about New Englanders will eat poison if it's free. So I think there's a, <laughs> there's a sales aspect to it. Well, there will, there will be a sales challenge. Mm. You can imagine that you can imagine people say, I'm not going to eat that fake meat. Uh, you know, that there will be a, there will definitely be a culture war over this. But as the fake meat gets better, um, you know, I'll be I'll be very interested to see what happens within the United States, but also globally as as, as alternatives to meat improve. As I said, I've tried some of these. I tried mm. some of these when I was um, uh, when I was in the U.S. Uh, in January of 2020. At the moment, they're very expensive and not that great. They're okay. They're fine. Um, but I'll be interested to see what happens there because I think in that sec segment of the market, because I think if you can give people an alternative to meat that tastes mm. like meat so that they don't think they have to just eat fruits and nuts as the kind of stereotype about vegetarians is, is goes, then I think that, that, that will be very, that will be very interesting to see how that, uh, that element of this story evolves because i think that will have a play a big part in how this story evolves although i do think we will have people who will will just refuse we'll mm. have a cultural war about this too and and there will be certain people who will eat meat as a form of political protest now, yeah you know and 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 the other thing sorry that we haven't discussed today which is interesting because during our lifetimes this is definitely a phenomenon david portions in america have become huge yes Right. And they're getting bigger all the time. And so now I don't know, you know, have a 64 ounce steak or whatever, you know, these, these kinds of things are, are, and I think that kind of grotesque and I'm using grotesque with reference to size uh, emphasis on me, there, there'll be, a, there will be an element that will continue to embrace that, but I don't know whether well, it'll be, it won't be a majority. You know, I, I don't think it never well, was. There's, there's the one of the issues I think that's going to be that sort of, fits into this culture war element and it fits into to sort of the, the broader picture of how many Americans embrace a non-meat-based diet has to do with the economics of it. I mean, right, you know, the, 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 the ability of Americans to buy 99 cent cheeseburger, you know, the, the, the relatively low cost of, of especially sort of fast food uh, means that for for many Americans that the, the you know a meat based diet is is the cheapest way to to provide your caloric needs, um, you know, and if you are living in a place that doesn't have a farmers market or a Whole Foods or some other kind of of access to to a wide range of vegetables, if you are living in a food desert, your choices are what you can get at Seven Eleven or at McDonald's. And even if McDonald's, I, I understand, is playing around with some things uh, in terms of uh, non-meat-based products, but you know, if that's your dietary landscape, what you have available to you, you're going to go with what you can afford and what's uh, easiest. Um, you know, being a vegetarian can be cheaper if you do it right, but it can also be you know much more difficult if you're uh, you know if you don't have access to your own kitchen, if you don't have Yep. cooking skills to be able to prepare vegetarian meals if, if going to mcdonald's is is the option available to you um you know that that's that's a uh, an issue i think we as americans need to sort of address and think about 
Yeah, if I, in conclusion, though, I'll say if anybody's thinking about this, I can encourage you on one level. You, and you're right about those challenges. There are, there are significant challenges. Make two observations. One is you'll make mistakes. So some of, we had, we've had some vegetarian meals that have been god awful, mm. you know, as we were experimenting and learning. And that's just the way it goes. Uh, but secondly, cleaning up is so much easier if you're not eating meat. The, the, doing the dishes is immensely easier without having animal fat everywhere. Hmm. So that, that that's an unforeseen, that was an unforeseen consequence and a real benefit. So if you're, if you're on the fence about this, if you don't like doing the washing up, then going vegetarian makes washing up a lot easier. Okay. That was an unexpected uh, <laughs> sales pitch for vegetarianism makes washing up easier. Okay. Much Take easier. the word for it. Right. Okay. What kind of fatty animals were you eating before? <laughs> <laughs> Arctic curlews. Uh, and, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, uh, it's time, time for a last drop, Frank. What, what you got? Uh, I, w one last time, I want to remind everybody about Annette Gordon-Reed's forthcoming Fennel Lecture, which is going to be this Thursday at 7 p.m. UK time, 2 p.m. New York, 11 a.m. Pacific. Uh, if you're in North America um, or beyond elsewhere, you can work it out. Uh, Annette's going to be speaking about her new book on Juneteenth, uh, which just got a great write-up in the new, in the Sunday New York Times book review. Um, it's going to be great. So get your you have to register and get a ticket. The tickets are free. Please do so. It's this coming Thursday. So this is my last reminder about that. What about you, David? What's yours? Uh, well, I want to recommend a project at the New York Public Library where they have uh, digitized menus that New York Public Library, I guess, has a huge collection of menus, uh, both from uh, restaurants in New York, but also from restaurants of a bunch of other around the country and around the world. And they are digitizing these menus and they are crowdsourcing transcriptions of these menus. So they've put the digitization huh. up and they're allowing users to go in and, you know, typing out the what the dishes are and what the prices are. And so they're getting this huge crowdsourced database and they've got thousands and thousands of, uh, according to their, the website right now, they've got over a million, 300,000 dishes transcribed from uh, more than 17,000 menus. Uh, so it's, if you're looking for a way to kill some time, uh, you can go and help them transcribe some, some menus, uh, and, and help, uh, future historians try to figure it out. It's also kind of fun just to go look back and look and see like what was available. You know, if you're going to a restaurant in 1962, and this is the one I'm just pulling up right in front of me, you know, how many dishes were available? What could you order? How much did it cost? You know, um, so, so tell us what, give us, give, give us oh, an example I, from I 1962, just, David. Oh, uh, the one I just pulled up right now is the famous anchor seafood. Uh, and, you know, they've got all the pages here of the menu. Uh, they have a huge number of dishes at this restaurant. It looks like over 300 different dishes you could get. Uh, I'm always wary about places like that. <laughs> yeah, it's like a diner. You know, it's like this huge book or this the cheesecake factory. Right. Uh, filet of marinated herring in cream sauce. No. Uh, no how much is clams that? A la casino. Oh, that's uh, that's only 55 cents. Clams casino. Uh, Clams Casino is, is uh, yeah, that's no, the Clams Casino is actually more. That's uh, 225 So that's actually pretty expensive. Uh, oysters a, a la Casino, baked, steamed, soft, 
uh, main clams. That sounds good. All kinds of good stuff here. Uh, but you know, these menus are often illustrated, and so they're they're fun to go back and 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 sort of see what people ate and and what people thought uh, a night in the town looked like, uh, whether it included meat or not. So fun stuff. That's excellent. Yeah, it fits with our theme tonight, today rather. Exactly. So all right, until next time, Frank, right, I hope David. you have some, some good meals. Thank you, David. Cheers. You too. Cheers. <laughs> the Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.